Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics here at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with Dr. Ken Birding, who's a professor of New Testament uh, in the undergraduate Bible and Theology program here at Biola University, who spends his life investing the Bible and theology into the lives of hundreds of undergrad students every year. But Ken also has a specialty that you might not be aware of in a book that's come out just recently on the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, So in case you're wondering, who are those guys? Uh, Ken, tell us a little bit, who are the Apostolic Fathers and why are they so interesting to you? Well, thanks for having me today. Really glad to be with you. So the Apostolic Fathers are the writings that come right after the period of the Apostles. It's a collection of writings, actually a modern collection of writings, but somewhat similar to the the collection of the New Testament, including letters, uh, letters of Ignatius, a letter of Polycarp to the Philippians, um, a letter from the church in Rome, First Clement, to the church in Corinth. There's a martyrdom in there. Uh, martyrdom of Polycarp. There's a sermon, Second Clement. There's a polemical essay, kind of in the form of a letter, which is a second, uh, which is Epistle of Barnabas. And there's a group of visions, or like an apocalypse, uh, the Shepherd of Hermos. Oh, there's also an apology too. It's an apologetic work to Diognetus. So these are just you know a number of different writings, kind of disparate writings. They represent a lot of what is being taking place in the early second century. And these are all historical figures um, who, yes. who, were lead, who were leaders in the church? Some of them are the leaders in the church. A couple of them, we don't know really who they are. So like Epistle of Barnabas, often called Pseudo-Barnabas, we don't really know who that was. Maybe there was a person named Barnabas down in Alexandria. Uh, we don't know for sure there. Who wrote the Didache? We don't know who that is. I didn't mention that document. Um, and, um, you know, who wrote to Diognetus? We have no idea who that is. We just know who the recipient of that is. But some of the others were leaders. Polycarp was a super important leader. Polycarp's really important in my life. I actually lived in a city for two and a half years Mm. and wrote my doctoral dissertation work on Polycarp, and that's how I got into this whole thing. Clement, he was a church leader in Rome, um, but he writes together with the elders there, and Ignatius was a church leader in Antioch on his way to be martyred in Rome. Okay. Uh, so what, I mean, other than doing, you know, doing your dissertation on Polycarp, what, what makes these characters so interesting to you? Yeah, well, part of it is that I lived in the area of the world where the center of that uh, was taking place. Like uh, Asia Minor is where the most important discussions in the Apostolic Fathers are taking place. So there was a bit down in Egypt, a little bit in Syria. So, but, and you, and you lived well. in Turkey for I did for I lived, many years. I lived there for seven years, and one of them, and maybe the epicenter, might be Smyrna, which is where Polycarp lived, and I lived in his exact city. And my oldest daughter was actually born there, so I have this real close psychological connection okay. to Turkey and that city in particular. But I also love these writers because I'm really into the New Testament. So, I mean, my normal day job is that as a New Testament teacher, 
Um, I hang out with the Apostle Paul a lot, but um, there's a lot you can learn about the New Testament from studying the earliest writings that come right after the period of the Apostles. Okay, let's, let's, let's go a little farther on that. The fathers you're talking about, they were not the disciples. That's right. They're not our, they're not our contemporaries. Right. You know, so they're not the ones who were closest to Jesus. They're not the ones who were closest to us chronologically. So what makes them so important? Um, well, the thing that makes them so important is that they show you what has happened in the development of church history right after the period of the apostolic, uh, the apostolic period. And in fact, some of them probably pushed slightly into that didache, maybe was even written in the first century, possibly before uh, the book of Revelation. First Clement was probably written right around the same time as Revelation. It wouldn't surprise me at all. So the thing that gets me really excited is I'm trying to answer questions that I possibly, any question that I possibly can about the apostolic age, the writings of the New Testament, by getting just a little bit of help, you know, looking at, um, at what they wrote in the second century. Actually, you could actually look at the apostolic fathers in kind of two directions. You could, you could say, oh, they're way more important than any other later writings just because of their proximity, mm-hmm. you know, because they're written in the same sort of Greek. They share the same presuppositional pool as the New Testament authors. Um, And there's even some oral tradition still um, floating around at that time. We know that from Papias during the early parts of the second century. Um, So that's one way you could view it. Another way you could view it, uh, all the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, is that they, they should be more ignored. And that may sound kind of funny, but they weren't used a lot in the big doctrinal disputes of the fourth and the fifth centuries. And they were pretty much lost to the church from the 6th century up until maybe the 17th century um, when a small collection of these writings were found and published then. And, and Didache wasn't published until 1870. So um, it's interesting. And they, they also don't have the same sort of theological depth as you would get from, say, Tertullian or Irenaeus just after that period, or for sure when you get out to Jerome and Augustine, people like that. So I really think that the way to approach the Apostolic Fathers is like a, a critical appreciation. So there's some good things in them, but you know you also need to think carefully about what you're reading because not all of it is, is useful. That's a great way to look at it, that there's a difference between these writers, many of whom knew the apostles yeah. and write their reflections, but they're not writing scripture like That's we sure. see in the Bible. So we need to be appreciative but yeah. critical. Now, when I talk to my students, these are my high school students. When we'll talk about church history, I mention the Apostolic Fathers, and it's like I see their eyes glaze over. That's but right. I pause and I go, let me tell you about this guy, Polycarp. Yeah. In his 80s, he's burned at the stake, refuses to recant his faith. Let me tell you about this Bishop Ignatius mm-hmm. and how he described that when he was being martyred, mm-hmm. if somebody said, you know, if he cries out and says, no, save me, he goes, no, I want to die like Jesus. Then they uh, then they just come alive. So tell us a little bit of the story of who was Polycarp, how did he die, who was Ignatius, and why mm-hmm. are these letters a reflection of who they were as people? Great. Well, let me back up and start with Ignatius, since he's kind of earlier, maybe a little older than Polycarp. Ignatius we just meet him as he starts writing letters as he's on his way to Rome to be martyred. He's being accompanied by 10 what he calls not so fondly leopards, which are Roman soldiers who are making him take a forced march all the way across what is modern-day Turkey, 
up through uh, Greece and then over to Rome. And so, um, you know, he's on his way there and he starts writing letters. And this guy is super fiery, just the way you described him here. He, he has all these word pictures and he keeps throwing off these one-liners. It's super interesting as you read. And he's got this passion to make sure that there's no false teaching in the church. He speaks against Gnosticism. He speaks against Judaizing elements. And he's, but he thinks that the, the bishop is the way to make sure, you know, false doctrine doesn't get into the church. He has no idea in his mind that, you know, bishops can go off as well. Yeah, you can just tell he doesn't even think about that. But that's sort of his issue. So he's on his way to be martyred. And um, along the way, he writes one of his letters to Rome. And is just saying, please, when I get to Rome, don't try to get me released. Don't use any of your... Uh, any of your, I can only think of the Turkish word, torpil, your clout, your influence to try to get me off the hook here. I want to be martyred, which is actually one of the problems with Ignatius. He's got this death wish. And you see later people kind of picking up on that and wanting to be martyred, right? Exactly that becomes right. a trend. And so he also writes to Polycarp as he's going, and he actually sees Polycarp during his travels. And so um, later on, uh, when Polycarp's really old man, there's a guy named Germanicus, a young man who is martyred in the city of Smyrna. And right after he's martyred, they start calling out for the blood of Polycarp because he's the main leader of that area. So all the Christians dutifully go over and tell him, hey, they're going to come after you. And he's like, I'm an old man. I can stay around here. I can do. And know. he's in his 80s, right? He's at, he's, he's at least 86. Okay. The Harris fragments say 104. So somewhere between oh, the ages wow. of 86 and 104. <laughs> And that document right there actually has a discussion built around this issue of not about Ignatius specifically, but saying you shouldn't try to offer yourself up for martyrdom. There was actually a guy in Smyrna named Quintus who did that. And then he saw the wild beasts and he got really afraid and he denied Christ. And so that's actually written about a martyrdom of Polycarp as well. But anyway, Polycarp, he is, he's He's the dude. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> he, he was so faithful to the Lord in all of this. So, let me ask, Polycarp. Let me ask you this. In, the, in these writings that you're describing, these letters and these church manuals, what are the big issues they're addressing at kind of the turn of the first century, early second century? And I mean by that, like you look at the biblical writers, Galatians, and they're talking about we are free from the law, or Ephesians is about unity. What are the big issues that the church is wrestling with that they address at this time? Yeah, a lot of the issues are the same, actually. There's similar issues. First Clement is dealing with unity because there's been a coup in Corinth. So the leaders in Rome, they write this letter to them and saying, hey, you still need to submit to the elders who are appointed by the apostles. You know, so unity is a big deal there. Um, sometimes they're very specific. Polycarp has to deal with, you know, uh, an elder named Valence who has gotten into greed, greed and um, lost his place of ministry as a result of that. Um, I already mentioned Ignatius. Some of them, though, are just really different, like Shepherd of Hermos. These are just a bunch of visions trying to encourage people toward repentance. Though so he's got some weird ideas about it there. You talked about a church manual, that's didache. And it's just saying, here's some practical stuff that you need to know about living out life in the church. Didache is just a short read. You should look it up. Um, the teaching of the 12 apostles is what it's sometimes called. 
but it's really just, um, you know, some wise stuff from the late first century that can help you know how to run a church. So it's a real mix, actually. Some of it, there's some, some sermons and some general teaching. There is not a single issue that is driving them. Maybe false teaching might be the biggest one. Are there any apostolic mothers? Uh, no, there are no apostolic mothers. But, I mean, when we talk about apostolic fathers, we don't mean apostles anyway. We mean post-apostolic fathers, so the earliest, um, the earliest writers after the New Testament. But there were, there were people who were, you know, important in that period. There was a woman named Thecla, for example, and they wrote a story called, you know, Acts of Paul and Thecla. It's a little bit of an unusual document as well. It's not part of the Apostolic Fathers. It's right afterwards, but the events in it maybe take place right around the same time. So, yeah. you know, I'm glad you raised the question because sometimes we assume that in the early centuries of church history, it was only the men who were heroic characters of faith. But it sounds like we got lots of stories of heroic women, too. Oh, who, absolutely. Who stood out. In fact, one of the famous martyrs uh, just after this period is a woman named Perpetua, and she suffered for Christ. You know, Ken, you had mentioned that the, the writings of the Apostolic Fathers are, are not on the same level with the writings of the That's New right. Testament. Uh, and you urge readers of those to be critical mm-hmm. or to read them with a critical eye, mm-hmm. not in a way different than we would read the New Testament. What, what are, can you give us some examples of some places where the writings of the Apostolic Fathers don't quite square with what we read in the New Testament? Yeah, we've got some of those. Um, you've got, for example, we just mentioned Ignatius, where he's like wanting to be martyred. I don't think we see that in the New Testament. Uh, Shepherd of Hermas is this really interesting but very unusual writing where he has a lot of visions and he has this kind of angelic guide who's a shepherd who kind of leads him through these visions. And um, he's really into repentance. So he's thinking about repentance. And the reason is, is because he sinned in his heart over when he saw a woman named Rhoda, and he didn't know if he could be forgiven for that. So basically, he develops this theology that you can be forgiven after your baptism, but only once. Oh. So that's what he thinks there. Wow. Yeah, that's the shepherd of Hermas. He also, it's interesting, his focus on repentance makes him minimize Christology, I think, too. So not enough focus on Jesus and a lot more on just sin and repentance and overcoming temptation and stuff like that. So that would be a a good example there. So more of a works-based spirituality that's you see emerging? Yeah, actually, and you do see that in some other things, too. Second Clement is a sermon that feels a little bit more in the works-based direction. Some people have tried to argue that the doctrine of grace was lost in the second century. I don't think it was lost. I think you see it in a number of different places, but there is some minimization of it compared with Paul. Are, are, these, are these fathers somewhat narrative in their writings, do they do they give us details about their life and their own you know, spiritual journey? Um, no, not mostly. We get some narrative. We get a lot of narrative in the martyrdom of Polycarp, and we actually can uh, we can 
kind of read between the lines of a narrative in, say, Ignatius's letters, for sure. A little bit in, in Polycarp's letter and some in First Clement as well, but most of the others not. Okay, really. the, re- the reason I ask about that is I'm curious to know if there, you know, if if there were some of the same character flaws that come out with some of the fathers as come out with some of the New Testament writers. Like Peter was, yeah. you know, seemed to be pretty clear about some of his character flaws, and of course that's. Mm pretty typical for the great heroes of faith of the Old Testament, too. Is that also true of the Apostolic Fathers? Oh, I'm sure it's true, but we don't see as much of that because we don't have as much narrative literature. We see, you know, the story I just told you about Hermas. And in the martyrdom of Polycarp, the story about Quintus, who, um, you know, who rushed toward martyrdom. But we don't have a lot there. Okay. By the way, just backing up a little bit, you asked about other things that might be different from the New Testament versus um, versus the Apostolic Fathers. I think about this uh, epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas, which is probably the earliest example of um, allegorical interpretation. Mm-hmm. So that that is a problem, actually. When you read his his writing, he's he's interpreting things allegorically. And that's, you know, you get yourself into trouble very quickly. That's kind of like when you take something and you try to make a meaning in it that is not actually there. And, um, you know, for example, in, in um, Epistle of Barnabas, he talks about how the Old Testament food laws were actually written because they're supposed to teach us about how to stay away from people who act like the animals that are described there. Well, that's, well, that's, that's not the original purpose of the Old novel Testament. novel interpretation. Yeah, that's exactly right. But allegorical interpretation became very popular after this period, especially in the Christian church. So that's something that we need to think more deeply about, especially because recently some people have begun to promote it again. I, I was forwarded a book by a friend of mine by Craig Carter. It's called Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. Uh-huh. And he argues that when you go back to some of the earlier church fathers, they had very different approaches to understanding Scripture, like you mentioned, that might trouble us. He said, uh-huh. but they still came up with a Nicene Creed, uh-huh. which is pretty orthodox uh-huh. by almost any uh-huh. Statement. So it makes me wonder, as I was studying the apostles, as you know, because we had many conversations about this, the fate of the apostles, in the back of my mind as I was reading Polycarp and Ignatius was, do they affirm any of these core theological doctrines that we hold now Mm -hmm. from Scripture? And I remember noticing things like substitutionary atonement, the deity of Christ. What are some of the big doctrines we hold that although they might have a different exegesis, you see them affirming early on within the church. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the major doctrine, doctrines that show up later in you know these more formal creeds that we have are showing up in these situational letters and documents even of the second century. So the doctrine of the Trinity shows up a number of points. Um, Doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. I'm thinking very clearly of the first chapter of Polycarp actually talks about that. Wow. Uh, but, but I need to put a caveat on this too. If you continue on in the letter, most of it's about ethics. So uh, maybe not emphasized quite as much as, um, as you would see in the New Testament. 
Uh, Christology is obviously very important. You see that in Ignatius. Um, now, there's some Christological problems occasionally, too, like in the Shepherd of Hermas. Um, but, see, when you were talking about the great tradition, a lot of times when people talk about the great tr- tradition, they simply skip over the apostolic fathers. Mm. So they don't get included in that. They kind of start with a great tradition with Irenaeus and Tertullian. Um, because the apostolic fathers are, to be honest, just a little bit messy. You know, there, there are some that are just more straight up. Like if you read Polycarp's letter, you feel like you're reading the New Testament, kind of. Mm. Um, and First Clement that way, too, though. You know, every once in a while you'll come across something that is just really strange. Um, but, um, but I think that we can still go there and we can just see how they're trying to work it out in the early days. But yeah, the, the things that are going to be uh, more written down as um, creeds of the church, they're already around. If you could sit down to a meal with a handful of these apostolic fathers, what kinds of questions would you want to ask them? Well, I think that one's easy for me because, you know, I'm, I'm really into the New Testament. And these guys, they knew, some of them actually knew apostles. I mean, Papias, we know for sure, knew some apostles. And Polycarp is for sure as well. And uh, and. First Clement must have as well because it was written so early in 95 AD. Um, so I want to know questions about the New Testament. I want to ask, I want to know things like what, what happened to Paul after his first imprisonment in Rome, you know, before he was actually re-imprisoned and killed under Nero. Now, First Clement sort of tells us, it says that he, he went preached, to Spain, right? Yeah, that's right. He doesn't say <laughs> Spain specifically, but the farthest limits of the West, which must be Spain. Mm. So he actually made it there. But I want to know all the other places he went. You can kind of, you know, put things together in the pastoral epistles, but it's hard to figure out. Questions like, was Paul previously married? A lot of scholars think he had been previously married. You know, his singleness comes after that. Maybe his wife had died. Maybe she was pulled back into her family because he was a Christian. You know, there's another question that a lot of people would love to know is like, how did Gnosticism start? Mm. Because some New Testament scholars try to push that back into the writing, the period of the writing of the New Testament. A explain, lot of people put it later. Yeah, explain to our listeners what, what you mean by Gnosticism. Sure. Gnosticism is, uh, well, there's various types of Gnosticism, but it's basically trying to help people uh, become more in the know. Have you ever wondered where the K in the, word, in the English word know <laughs> comes from? Kno, it actually comes from the Greek word gnosis, the guk, same part of your throat. And so the gnostics or the gnostics were the ones who wanted you to become in the gno. And, um, and you would move up in the levels of knowledge, kind of like secret societies, you know, secret handshakes, all that sort of stuff. They helped you to, to figure out how you could negotiate after you died the, you know, the various levels where there's all these um, evil spirits who are going to try to mess you up. is weird, actually, some of it. And it's docetic, so it, it's, um, it thinks, and dualistic, so it thinks that body and physical stuff is evil and um, spiritual things are good. So, you know, Gnosticism is something that developed as a full-blown system in the second century and kind of combines Christianity with all these other weird ideas. I've got a last question for you. How does the writings of the early church fathers help us know which books should be in the canon? Mm -hmm. 
and obviously by the canon, I mean which books are scripture, because some of these debates went into the second, into the third centuries. Mm -hmm. The Shepherd of Hermas sometimes was considered scripture. And I, I haven't studied this formally, but I was reading like Ignatius and First Clement. They would quote scriptures like Ephesians and sometimes the Gospels and refer to them as scripture. Mm -hmm. How do they kind of help us sort through the, that question? Yeah, the great thing about the Apostolic Fathers is that they do use earlier scripture. And, uh, and First Clement, you mentioned, and Ignatius actually tie into Paul and to a couple of the other writings as well. Polycarp's the man on this one, though. Polycarp, he's, have you ever met like a really old person who knows the King James Bible so well that they almost talk <laughs> like the King James Bible? You know, those, these people are starting to die out now, but they used to be around a lot. And um, Polycarp was like that. So when he, when he writes, he's just like throwing off quotations from earlier writings, allusions and quotations to earlier writings, Old Testament, New Testament, about half of his quotations are from Paul. So he, he actually cites just about every um, letter of Paul in his writings, except for just a few. There's, I think, three or four. And I did a lot of my doctoral work actually on this particular question. But they don't always call it scripture. That's not always. They sometimes do. Paul, I mean, Polycarp has one place where he actually combines a, um, a quotation from Ephesians with a quotation from the Old Testament. And you can tell that he's thinking of that as yeah. scripture. And I, and I had this incredible discovery, actually, as I was doing my, my work. I discovered that Polycarp, when he quotes all of these people, sometimes from Paul, sometimes from others, he has a tendency to cluster Pauline quotations every time he mentions the name of Paul. And the, uh, he does it three times. It's very distinct. And the first two times he actually has quotations from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, which shows that he believed that Paul oh, was the author of 1 and 2 Timothy, which moves the dating of those documents all the way wow. down to 120 or 110 when Polycarp is writing that. That's a very significant um, observation, actually. That's, yeah, that's really helpful. That's a, that's a great question, too, because you know, it, it, it wasn't automatic that these books were included in the canon. It was a process, and it mm. was, you know, and the, and the Apostolic Fathers obviously had a contribution to make mm. to that. So, Ken, we're very grateful for you coming on with us today. Thanks. I want to remind our listeners to be sure, be sure and get the copy of your book, The Apostolic Fathers, which is written in a really creative way. It's a really, it's a really fun, readable way to uh, look into this this period, this really influential period in the history of the church. After the apostles, the mm -hmm. generation right after the apostles. So, mm -hmm. Ken, thank you for your expertise on Thanks. this and for making this come alive for us. Because uh, these are, you know, these aren't just, you know, words on a page. These are actually flesh and blood people who, yeah. you know, who spent years and years of faithfulness to Christ and endured terrible persecution in a lot, in lots of cases, and are great. I think great models for us of what it means to be faithful in a culture that's increasingly hostile to people of faith. So, Ken, we're delighted to have had you with us. Thanks for coming on with us. Thanks so much. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Ken Birding, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Birding today, give us a rating on your podcast app, share it with a friend. And thanks for listening. Remember, think biblically about everything.